Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes today returning to the beginning. This is not our first sermon in Ecclesiastes. You may remember if you were here last week that Pastor Andrew led us at a look at the end of the matter in chapter 12 uh, to give us a sense of where all these things are headed. And today we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, The old saw says that pastoral ministry is a matter of comforting those who are troubled and troubling those who are comfortable. And as we read Ecclesiastes, there is uh, no question which tact uh, the preacher takes here as we read these uh, these words in verses 1 to 11 that really yearn for resolution. As we read these words, it's like hearing a song in the key of C that doesn't end with a C note. And you're You're just waiting uh, for the rest of it, and that's on purpose. Uh, That tactic is one that we will see as we go throughout Ecclesiastes, uh, teaching us to look and to learn, to yearn uh, for the resolution that we find in Christ alone. So we're going to be reading today Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Before we read this passage together, I ask that you would join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing in our study. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this, your word. Though it sounds a little bit different than some of the other scriptures we're used to hearing, though it may trouble us, we thank you for troubling us uh, so that we would be turned from vain things to look to you. We pray that that's precisely what you would do for us today. We pray that you would teach us to look at Christ, uh, to believe in him, and to find life by his name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil that which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we read and study it together today. I think it was, uh, it was several months ago, I was probably looking for sermon illustrations. I was browsing around uh, on the internet, and I landed on this article uh, from Men's Health. Not the sort of thing I normally read, but it was there, and the title stated very boldly, The new middle age is 37. That was the title. 
the image at the top of the page was this very cleverly photoshopped banana. One half of the banana was a beautiful yellow and firm and sweet looking and, and ready to be eaten. And exactly the other half of the banana was already brown and shriveled. And right there in between the two halves was the produce sticker. Uh, but it looked like one of those maps in the middle of a shopping mall because the produce sticker said, you are here. <laughs> well, the author went on to explain. He said, statistically speaking, 37 is the median age of men in America right now. It's also almost halfway to the end of the average man's life expectancy, which is 76. He said that means that 37 is midway between the cradle and the grave. Now, as a 37-year-old man, I find that highly offensive. <laughs> Nevertheless, it might explain that sudden desire to buy a motorcycle. And, uh, you know, the idea of a midlife crisis is familiar enough to us that, that even if you've never experienced one, you have a good idea of what it's probably supposed to feel like. It's supposed to feel like... a a sort of sober reevaluation of where you've come in your life so far. It's like smelling salts to the way that you've been just sort of gliding and drifting through adulthood. A midlife crisis, we imagine, is supposed to feel like looking through binoculars, except they're backwards, and so it makes all of your achievements and all of your life thus far seem much smaller and much less significant than you think it ought to have been by now. James Dobson said that, a midlife crisis is the sudden realization that the ladder you've been climbing your whole life is leaning against the wrong wall. Then again, if you really were climbing up the wrong wall, wouldn't you want to know before you got to the top? In fact, if you were to have this sort of reevaluation crisis, wouldn't you want it to come sooner rather than later? If you met it at midlife, wouldn't you feel that it came far too late? Now, the truth is, whether you are 37 or 73 or 13, your climb is almost over. No matter how full, no matter how sweet and fruitful your life may seem now, it is only a matter of time that all that will be left is a shriveled peel. Now, as we return now to the beginning of Ecclesiastes, we need to know that Solomon is out to convince us. He's out to give us a crisis in our own lives, no matter how old we are. He's out to convince us that almost all of the ladders that people climb to significance are planted in the wrong place. And so he has this jarring opening monologue, vanity of vanities, he says. And he gives it to, to catch our attention to pry our eyes open, to help us to see the realities of the fleeting nature of life under the sun. We're going to look today at these, these verses really in two phases. We're, we're going to look at all of it, and then we're going to look at all of it again. But the first time we look at it, we're, we're going to pay attention to the painful reality of life as we know it. That's our first point today, a painful reality. Now Solomon makes his point in verse 2, that's the summary of the argument. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As we go through this book, there are several things that we need to get pretty comfortable with. And one of the things we need to get comfortable with is this idea of vanity, this word. The, the Hebrew word is hevel. 
And you can file it away in your, your dictionary of Bible words, somewhere between agape and koinonia, somewhere around hesed. Th throw hevel in there. It's an important one that you want to hold on to, and it's going to show up an awful lot in Ecclesiastes, some 36 times. And this word, hevel, it, it denotes something insubstantial, something empty almost. It is perhaps the, the idea of scenery on a theater stage. It's supposed to give you the idea of something firm, the picture of something substantial, but it's really just plywood, and it's propped up, and it's painted to make you think that it's something it's not. That's Hevel. Perhaps worse, it's often translated as breath, as smoke, as, as vapor. Hevel is that last wisp of, of morning mist that was disappearing today as the sun was rising. That's Hevel. Hevel is also proof of what Solomon is going to teach us later, that of the making of books, there is no end. <laughs> because it's this word that it's really at the center of the argument of Ecclesiastes, that there is this seemingly never-ending debate among the scholars and among all of the commentators trying to nail down what exactly does Hevel mean. And the debate centers on, uh, on one of two options. They tell us, the, the scholars tell us that Hevel could mean, on the one hand, uh, something about time. And on the other hand, it could mean something about significance. You understand the distinction. On the one hand, they're saying, uh, Solomon is telling us that life is short, that it's fleeting, that it's short-lived. On the other hand, speaking of significance, they, they would say maybe he's telling us that life is meaningless, uh, that it doesn't amount to much of anything. And in the Old Testament, this, this word, hevel, this concept, can, uh, can do double duty. It can show up as either one of those ideas. For example, Psalm uh, 144 says that man is like a breath. There's our word. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. It's pretty clear. Psalm 144, that context is telling us that, that man's life, our days, are temporary. You walk outside on a 30-degree day, and you breathe, and there's that smoke, and then it disappears. That's Havel. Man is, is like a breath. On the other hand, uh, sometimes it could mean something that is empty. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 15, he, he pronounces Havel over the idols that have captured the heart of Israel. He says they are worthless, a work of delusion. Worthless is the word Havel. The problem with idols in Israel is not that they disappeared too quickly. Quite the opposite. They stuck around far longer than they should have. The problem with the idols is they were, they were projecting something that wasn't true. They were empty. They were a delusion. They were, uh, they were meaningless and savagely deceptive. And so we need to get comfortable with this, that, that in Ecclesiastes there is this push and pull between these two possibilities of Hevel. And if you are the one who can figure it out, well, then you can maybe get your own dissertation and publish your own book, and you can prove to the rest of us that your life isn't so meaningless after all. Now, for the rest of us, probably the best approach is to leave it as is and to recognize that the power of this word is in the fact that it, it has this double meaning. It's meant to carry this double meaning through the whole thing. In fact, there is a shortness to our lives. Our lives are over in the blink of an eye, and sometimes the lives of the people who are around us are over far sooner than we think they should be over, and it is that shortness that leaves our imprint upon the universe relatively meaningless. 
Our life is vanity. It is mist. It is a vapor. It's over and it leaves almost nothing behind. We spend our times, our short lives, spinning our wheels and then we die and somebody else spins the same wheels all over again. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. And if you need proof of that that first thesis statement, the rest of the passage offers you examples. Through through nature and humanity and history, you can see this vanity working out everywhere you look. There is, in the first place, the vanity of nothing gained. The vanity of nothing gained. Verse 3, there's this other key theme that shows up repeatedly in the book. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now gain, we'll come back to that, but this phrase, under the sun, that's the phrase that helps us to unlock the rest of the meaning of this book. It is an expansive term, really. It encompasses everything in the realm of the living, every every pleasure that can be conceived, everything from, from indulgence to asceticism, everything from wisdom to folly, any way that you can search for human significance in the world around you that you can see, that you can interact with, that you can taste and touch and feel and smell under the sun encompasses it all. It is this all-encompassing, uh, expansive term. But then again, under the sun is a pretty restrictive term. You know, there is a limit to what's being weighed in the teacher's balance here. There is a God and there is a universe of his creation outside of the things that we interact with every day, those things that happen under the sun. There's a scholar by the name of G.S. Hendry, and he said that... uh, Working off of this this phrase, under the sun, he said that Ecclesiastes really is a work of apologetic. This argument is intentional, that that what Solomon is doing, he suggests, is is really entering into the worldview of the materialist. Life under the sun, that's, that's what you know, that's what you want to interact with. All right, let me come along with you. Let me see where that argument leads you. Let let me see where this worldview turns out in the end. Let's push it to its logical consistency. And so we begin, and and Solomon is asking, what happens uh, under the sun? It's pretty expansive, but it's also a limited term. And the real real question is, well, what is gained? Back to that question at hand, what does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? Gain is an economic term. It means a surplus. It means something left over when the books are closed. And so when the account of your life is, is emptied at the end, what will there be left over? What does man gain by all of his toil? And the answer is relatively nothing. Almost nothing at all. Just look at the world around you. You can see it in the earth, the sun, the wind, the water. Everything is caught in this perpetual cycle of activity without real achievement. It produces nothing permanent. Verse 4, a generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Same as it ever was. Without our imprint lasting, though we think we're so impressive. A while ago I saw a video about the reforestation of Chernobyl. It's only been 35 years since the nuclear fallout. You know what's happening in Chernobyl is the forest is coming back in to claim that once prosperous city. The buildings are ruins. 
And all the humans are worried about radiation, but there's plenty of life there. In fact, European gray wolves are thriving on the prey animals that are, that are untouched, that are happening, that are living in Chernobyl. And so give it time, and pretty soon the buildings will crumble into nothing, and the forest will retake what was theirs, and it will be like people were never even there. A generation goes, a generation comes. The earth remains forever. The buildings will collapse. And then there's the sun in verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. If you have an ESV, you'll notice the footnote there. It indicates that hastens probably should be better translated as pants. It's exhausting. It's this cycle of never-ending labor like a celestial Sisyphus, always on an errand, always trying to achieve the unachievable. The sun goes up, the sun goes down, it goes back, it rises, it sets, it rises, it sets again. There are changes with the seasons. We can see them, we can predict them, but it always comes back to the way it was. Perfectly predictable, perfectly boring, perfectly exhausting. The wind and the water follow similar patterns. North and south, round in circles. The rivers keep on flowing into the ocean. The ocean never says, I've had enough, thank you. I, I'm done, please no more. And this is written in, in and around Jerusalem. Within, you know, not very far, just a few kilometers of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea that has an inlet and no outlet. And for millennia, the Jordan River pours into the Dead Sea, and it never fills up. In fact, it never gets above sea level. And so it just stays, and, and they keep on pouring in, and there's, there's never any filling. It's an example of this perpetual work without achievement. It's all so much weariness, says verse 8. It's weariness. Weariness of motion without progress, action without fulfillment. The same thing happens in the human body. We're always seeing, but we're never satisfied with what we see. We always want to see more. We never say, I, I think I'm good. I think I'll just choose blindness for the rest of my life because I've had enough of seeing. We, we keep hearing things and we keep wanting to hear more things. It's so weary that we can't speak of it. The idea actually there is, is parallel with the next two. That all of our speech really is, is meaningless to, to recount all of the weariness. We could speak for the rest of our lives and we could never catalog everything. We can't speak, we can't hear, we can't see. All things are always striving and never achieving anything of lasting permanence, yet it all just keeps churning on. There's a vanity to it. There's a vanity of nothing gained. There's also a vanity of nothing new. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. <laughs> what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. And this is the place where we want to say to Solomon, now hold on a minute. Uh, we're in the 21st century, and we realize there was a time when technological advancement meant you got a semi-stronger sword every 500 years. This is the 21st century. We've got moon rovers and Mars rovers. We've got microsurgery. We've got televisions the size of minivans. Hey, we've got minivans, right? Remember when they were all much bigger? This is new. This is different. Now, last month, Elon Musk made the argument that soon we're going to need a universal basic income because in his mind, quote, in the future, physical work will be a choice. It just so happened that he made that announcement the same day that Tesla announced their Tesla bot, a humanoid robot to do the mundane tasks around your house you don't want to do. 
And so the idea is that with advanced automation, nobody will have to do the garbage collecting. Nobody will have to do the, the produce harvesting. Nobody will have to do the mind-numbing, uh, back-aching work that has filled human history for centuries, for millennia. It will all go the way of all things. It might be entertaining if you forget that in 1967, Walter Cronkite announced on the evening news that Quote, technology is opening a new world of leisure time. One government report projects that by the year 2000, the United States will have a 30-hour work week, and month-long vacations will be the rule. There's really nothing new. We've seen it all before. Every technological advancement is sold to you with the promise that when you have this, your life will be much easier, really. Everything from the cotton gin to your email address has told you that as soon as you get this, it will all be easier. Well, what does your email address allow you to do? Not work less, but bring your work home with you. Answer it at all hours of the day. There's nothing new under the sun. If there's an opportunity for greater productivity, we will pursue greater productivity, and we haven't really changed much at all. There's nothing new under the sun. We may have come up with a few more creature comforts. We, we live, we work, we raise families, we form governments. We still address all the same basic human problems. World economies rise and world economies fall and cultural expressions become vogue and outdated. This summer, uh, the fashion magazines were announcing that the next big thing is low-rise boot-cut jeans. The same jeans the girls were wearing when I was in high school. There's nothing new under the sun. There's a thinker who, who spoke about the problem with the younger generations. He said, children today love luxury. They have bad manners. They have contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders, and it sounds like some crotchety boomer complaining about Gen Z, but it was Socrates. 2,400 years ago complaining about the next generation. There is nothing new under the sun. And this is Solomon's point. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Do we get excited over things? It's already been in the ages before us, he says. Is there a social media platform that claims to be the next big thing? Give it time. Anybody here have a MySpace account? Exactly. Give it time. It will be exploited eventually because the people who are arranging these things and the ends for which they, uh, they put them together has not changed at all. Pretty soon it will become either passe or exploited for another avenue for, for greed and lust and comparison and judgmentalism and sarcasm. And it will happen with that new thing the same way that it happened with the internet, the same way that it happened with the television, the same way that it happened with the radio, with the printed page, with the cave drawings on walls. There is nothing new under the sun. We have a saying to explain it that the more things change, the more they remain the same. But Solomon simply points us to the vanity of nothing new. There is the vanity of nothing remembered as well. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Again, the footnote's helpful. It, it lets us know that probably the best translation is to think of this as former and latter peoples, not former and latter things. People won't be remembered. You won't be remembered. 
There are exceptions to the rule, of course. There, there are the Diana Spencers of the world, right? And their candle burns out long before their legend ever will. At least that's the way that Elton John put it. And there's this frenzy now on the almost 25th anniversary of her death. There are the Diana Spencers and the bright lights of history. There are the Socrateses and there are the Alexanders and, and there are the Solomons. But imagine of the 7.8 billion people living today, how many of them will even get so much as a Wikipedia entry? And then again, even if there are important people that you can read about in history, reading about important people is a far cry from remembering those people. You can pick up a, a biography of John Calvin. You can learn all about his, his timeline, his history. You can, you can read what was happening in Europe at the time. You can know about the Protestant Reformation. You can read the Institutes and still never know what he sounded like when he was groaning, when he was dealing with his many bodily ailments. You'll never know the thoughts that kept him awake at, at night when he couldn't sleep. You'll never know his morning routine. It's one thing to read about people. It's another thing to remember somebody because you can only remember people you actually have memories of. And if you've ever lost someone that you cared about desperately, you already know how startlingly soon those memories can start to fade. There is no remembrance, says the preacher. Across the street from my home in Chelmsford is a town cemetery. It started in, in one place close to the main road, and then over two and a half centuries it expanded as the needs for more graves uh, continued, and now they have taken up all the available space. But that, that means that if you start on the northward side of the cemetery and walk south, you can literally walk into the time of forgetfulness. Because the graves on one side, across the street from where we live, they still have visitors. They still have fresh flowers and people who come and look and remember and sometimes weep. But as you go along the line, the names are obscure. The dates are covered in moss. The marble, the slate is, is crumbling. Solomon is reminding us that unless the Lord returns first, there is a day coming when your great-grandchildren will die and be forgotten by their great-grandchildren. Nothing gained. Nothing new, nothing remembered. That's the painful truth of life under the sun. It's also temporary. It's also ineffective. It's also dissatisfying. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That can't be, <laughs> that can't be the point, right? That, that's not what you came here to hear this morning. That, that's not where I normally end a sermon, so, so what's the catch? Now remember that, that I said we have to get comfortable with a few things as we study Ecclesiastes. We need to get comfortable with this concept of, of Hevel. We also need to get comfortable with doing the hard work of searching out the answers to the problems that Solomon gives us when he doesn't give us the answers himself. That's often what he does. He, he will give us that unresolved symphony that, that doesn't end on the tonic and you just want somebody to go over to the piano and hit a C chord just to, just to give you that sense of, 
And he never gives it to you until the end, which is why we started there last week, so that we have our eyes set on, on the end of the matter, that we know where it's going, because in the middle it's going to be a little uncomfortable as we go through. And so we need to, to get comfortable with, with looking for the answers that Solomon doesn't give us yet. Yes, life is frustrating under the sun. It's vain. It's weary. And Christians, quite frankly, don't get a hall pass to skip all of the weariness. Faith in Christ, when you become a Christian, it doesn't immediately make daily living exciting. <laughs> it doesn't give you this sense of this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where I ought to be. No, but faith in Jesus does teach us that there is more to life than life under the sun. Faith in Christ teaches us that all the despair of our vain lives is specifically designed, specifically designed to make us long for something lasting. And so in the second phase of, of looking through this passage, we need to consider the eternal hope that Solomon hasn't given us yet. We've already seen a painful reality. Next, we need to see an eternal hope. And so it's true that, that Solomon hasn't given us any hope in the picture that he's painted. There, there is not a positive, upbeat note in the whole symphony so far. But if you're paying attention, you might notice that he's already laying the groundwork for hope in what he has given to us. And the groundwork for hope comes in correctly diagnosing the problem that we're facing. Look again at, at verse 3, this rhetorical question. He doesn't expect us to answer because the answer is obvious. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Notice that that is not an individual question. Solomon's not asking you, what does this man or that woman gain? He's not saying, this individual over here, the word is more general. It's a, it's a humanity question. What does man gain in all the toil at which... We toil under the sun. What does humanity gain? What does mankind gain? In Hebrew, the word is Adam. Right? What does, what does Adam gain? Adam toils all day under the sun. Mankind works his calloused hands to fill his empty stomach. Humanity constructs families and communities and societies and cultures, and we expand, and we fill the earth, and we have dominion over the creatures, the birds and the beasts and the fish. And what does Adam gain? What gain does Adam have from all his toil with which he toils? Well, ultimately, nothing. So long as death stops him short. And that has been the problem from the beginning. Well, not the beginning, beginning, but, you know, pretty, pretty soon after the beginning, beginning. This is taking us all the way back to the start. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, and to Adam and to mankind, the Lord God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. What does man gain for all of his toil? But thorns and thistles and dust and death. 
And so Douglas Sean O'Donnell says that verse 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3 really is a curse-filled question. It's a question spoken with the ash of, of death in your mouth. It harkens back to where things went wrong in the beginning. It is an accurate diagnosis of life under the sun because it is an accurate diagnosis of life under God's curse for sinners. The vanity of our short, frustrating lives is God's punishment. But it is also a punishment that's pronounced with a blessing, with a promise. There's very little in the New Testament that that quotes or even alludes to Ecclesiastes. We can find uh, common themes, but, but most of the writers of the New Testament don't pick up on Ecclesiastes. Paul does. Not surprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly, he picks it up in, in one of the vast high points of the New Testament theology. Romans chapter 8. The one that Presbyterians love because it reminds us that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. That, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, that's where Paul picks up Ecclesiastes and perhaps is the only writer in the New Testament to quote it directly. There in Romans 8, Paul is talking about our messed up lives in this messed up world. And he's talking about the fact that we're waiting for redemption in Christ. And there, Romans 8, verses 19 to 21, Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. That's our word, hevel, matiotis in the Greek. Creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, to things not working the way you think they ought to work, to things not presenting and moving in the direction you feel they ought to be presenting and moving. He says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, in order that the creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you hear Paul's point? The vanity of this world comes from God. He's the only one who is able to subject all things, to consign all things to vanity and to futility, and he has done it. He's put his punishment on all of our efforts, but he's done it in hope. He's consigned all things to frustration in order that we, together with creation, would wait with eager longing for something that's better to come. That's why he keeps going in Romans chapter 8. That's why Paul goes on to say that even until now, all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Struggling with the pain of, of what is present, waiting for the joy of what is to come. Creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. That's why he goes on to say that we ourselves also groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. It's why he goes on to say that the Spirit helps us to pray while we wait, interceding within us with groans too deep for words. Do you notice that theme that holds together? Creation groans with the pains of childbirth. We groan waiting for adoption. The Spirit teaches us with groans to pray, Abba, Father. 
there is this family word trajectory that we're supposed to be looking for, the resolution to the symphony that, that we sit in the midst of and we say, this isn't right, it doesn't work the way that it ought to, things don't turn out the way that it should be going. And Paul is saying that there is something like a blessed dissatisfaction if we can look at the world around us, that we can look at our sin within us, if we can look at our shortcomings and our failures, it's a gift of God to see all that and to arrive at a spirit-filled realization that this life is not going to satisfy you. It was never intended to. That was the problem in the garden, wasn't it? If I have this created thing that God has not given me, I will have enough. I'll be like him. I'll know what he knows. I'll have what God has withheld from me. It's thinking that this world can satisfy us. No, God has prepared us for more. As Solomon will say in chapter 3, God has put eternity into man's heart. And so that frustration that turns into longing is God's design. It's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. It's a curse pronounced in hope. It's futility that is meant to make us long for something lasting. You can think about it this way, that, that the vanity of this life, the shortness of our lives, the futility of our lives, it's like that spring inside the toy car that, that the more you pull it back, the more the spring advances. And the more the spring advances, the more the tension builds. And the more the tension builds, the greater uh, that car wants to launch as soon as you take your hand off of it. It's a good thing, meant to point us in the right direction, not life under the sun, but life with the Lord above the sun. It's probably safe to say that many people are too troubled by that tension to take an honest look at the vanity of life under the sun. It's probably uh, safe to say that many people are worried that if they actually admit that this life is not all they hoped it would be, that they'll be left with nothing. Nothing gained, nothing new, nothing remembered. And so what do we do? But we leave our life under the sun unexamined. We keep on climbing our ladders to satisfaction, our, our ladders of, of materialism, our ladders of lust, our, our ladders of self-gratification, our, our ladders of achievement, our, our ladders of, of pleasure or education or man-made religion, a host of other things, thinking that we're climbing in the right direction. And while we keep, keep climbing, we ignore the gift that God has given us. What's the gift? The gift is a short and frustrating life to remind us that this earthly existence is ultimately insufficient. That our lives under the sun are cosmically inconsequential. It's a gift to turn us in the right direction. Soren Kierkegaard called despair the sickness unto death. Despair is the sickness unto death. And he said that actually it's something beneficial, at least at a starting point. He wrote that the possibility of the sickness of despair is man's advantage over the beast. He went on to say that to be aware of this sickness is the Christian's advantage over the natural man. And he said to be cured of this sickness is the Christian's blessedness alone. 
That means we need to start here. We need to start with Solomon. We need to start by admitting that this life under the sun is weariness and vanity. It is only once we have given up hope of fulfillment under the sun that we will look for fulfillment in what God has created us for. Only then will God's promises of eternal life through faith make any kind of sense to us at all. It's only then that repentance will be so valuable that we'll actually have the courage to engage in it with any kind of honesty. Because our reputation in our little kingdom isn't what our life is about. It's only then that will an inheritance kept in heaven seem more appetizing than the distractions we fill our days with. Dear believers, perhaps the best thing we can learn together as we study Ecclesiastes is how to look with our lives not with contentment but with longing. Longing for food that endures to eternal life. Longing for living waters that well up within us and leave us eternally satisfied. Longing, as we read in in Malachi today, for the son of righteousness to rise with healing in his wings. Longing for that eternal rest that can only be found in the Savior. The one who took the punishment of our death so that we can receive the promise of his life. It's my hope that Ecclesiastes is going to help us as we study it to break the death grip that most of us have on our vain little lives. It's my hope that Ecclesiastes will show us that the Lord intends our life under the sun to make us long for something lasting. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for this unsettling word. We pray that you would drive us to your Savior, to your Son. Pray that you would teach us to walk with him and trust in him. Pray that you would keep us looking and trusting in your promises through him. Oh Lord, give us faith in you. Give us faith in what you provide for us. And help us, O Lord, to be your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table which proclaims to us the promise of life through God's Son. Not the futility that we experience under the sun, but the one who came and experienced our futility with us. The one born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law. He did it by submitting his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out on the cross of Calvary. So that we can have reconciliation with the Father, so that we can have forgiveness and life in his name. This table is set with two elements that represent to us Christ's body and blood. His sacrifice for sinners.